where we'd all be comfortable. So, the welcome return of fan favorite Mr. Matthew Risling. He and your host and random Canadian Larry Parsons are going to be discussing kids and crocodiles, kids and animals, kids and perils. I don't know, this is a really weird list as we discuss in the podcast. Uh, basically, we have three horror movies that are designed and made for children. And we have three horror movies about crocodiles or alligators eating people. Why are they together? Because your host and random Canadian, Larry Parsons, is as broken as this world is during COVID. Thank you for coming back and thank you for giving me your ears. I want to let you know that there may be some changes coming in the future for Rank and Review as far as me wanting to keep the quality as good as possible for the podcast. I may have a smaller guest list or a roster of guests than I have in previous seasons. This will keep the quality of the episodes higher, and it will keep me from having to constantly pester strangers or pester people to do the show. So we're going to try a little bit different. We're going to be attacking some franchises. We're going to have some shows with maybe multiple guests. We're going to have, you know, a few different flavors to the meal. But the sort of source, the strong rank and review feeling that you're looking for, the six movies on a vague subject being forced to randomly rank, all of that will stay true. Your host and random Canadian Larry Parsons will stay true. But I'm going to let the show maybe grow and evolve with this strange world that we found ourselves in. That's a long preamble. Welcome to the new season. Thank you for joining us to the 201st episode. And uh, let's get into it. With the understanding there will be spoilers, there will be swears, and it's going to be a lot of fun, because Matt's always a lot of fun, isn't he? So, let's do it. say in the movie biz you should never work with kids or crocodiles. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, it is it's Christmas season 2021 
in the broken world of COVID, and I finally get to do another face-to-face podcast with Mr. Matt Risling. I'm back, bitches. <laughs> it's been a more than a year since well, you've been on When Earth was the last time we did, like, a face-to-face? I think it was the one where we did It. Yeah. So that's got to be two years ago, at least. Like, two or three. No, two, I was in China for two and a half years, oh so maybe, like, 2017, 2016? It's been too long. But whenever you're on the de- on, on the podcast, whether it, we're doing it over Skype or whatever... It's it's good times. I really like that actually that urban horror episode that we did really like last minute. Oh yeah, we both yeah. like watched the movies like right before it happened. This is kind of the opposite scenario. Okay, so you can edit this out, but I was just watching the most '90s movie ever, Tombstone, right? the other night. And Ike, the cowardly, sniveling guy, was the blind guy from Don't Breathe. He's been in everything. He shows up all the time. But like, how is this imposing figure, <laughs> Ike from Tombstone? Not only is he terrifying, but he's terrifying and he's blind. Yeah. <laughs> like, no, that guy, he's, he's he, he knows what he's doing. He's yeah. Doing. Uh, yeah, so check out the Urban Horrors episode if you haven't. And uh, this episode we're going to be talking about, well, I, I was going to say kids and animals, but kids and crocs is probably closer crocs. to uh, accurate, I think. One of them is technically an alligator, but I think kids and crocs. I think we need to just dissolve the distinction yeah, between alligators true, and yeah. crocodiles. I always get it wrong, so if we were to just, just call them, you know, the same thing, then, then that way I would feel less stupid about it. Yeah. <laughs> and the, that's the important thing to me. A- anything to make you feel less stupid. I feel like, I usually ask, why did you pick this list? But I kind of crammed this <laughs> yeah. list down your, your throat. I so. was utterly <laughs> bewildered by these, <laughs> these two half-lips that got <laughs> mashed together. Well, I've kind of recently gotten fascinated with well I'm fascinated with the horror genre generally but two facets of it have sort of caught my attention that's when animals attack movies which there's been more of recently of higher quality uh, that I've been noticing and I'm kind of fascinated with horror stories that are directed specifically to a child audience like I'll kids' movies have an element of horror to them. You know, the kids... No, you're talking about Saltwater, the battle for (laughs) (laughs) Ramry Island here. One might assume. But, uh, no, I don't think that movie was made for children. Maybe by children. (laughs) I think it's scripted by the son of the director. (laughs) But not for. But it's interesting because most kids' films are basically meant to be light, fun, maybe have a lesson to them, but uh, not not stress the kid out it's uh i think inevitable that kids will be fascinated by by that sort of end of the story but to sit down and say i want to make a horror movie for kids what are you doing (laughs) and uh how does that play out and i've found a few interesting ones yeah so i remembering back to my childhood uh as a i guess we're gen xers Right? Is that what we are? Yeah. Okay. Uh, growing up in the 80s, there were actually a lot of horror movies. There were a lot of transitional horror movies for kids. That, that genre doesn't exist anymore, as far as I can tell. Um, but, you know, like, I, I guess, I think you're thinking of The Gate. The Monster Squad, The Gate. Uh, I guess Ghostbusters kind of, sort of, although that was sort of meant for everyone. It wasn't directed just at kids, but yeah. kids sure loved the shit out of it. Critters. Maybe. I think that was an R-rated one, was it? I, I feel like Critters was directed. Gremlins, I think, was Gremlins, supposed to be for a family yeah. audience. Um, and it was clearly a horror movie. <laughs> um, I think they invented the PG rating for Gremlins. Or it was either that or Temple of Doom. Right. Because right. the dude gets his heart ripped out in Temple of Doom, and they thought, maybe this isn't a kid's movie. Right, right, right. <laughs> but I, I like that line that you have to walk. Uh, another thing that I find fascinating like uh, is uh, like made-for-television horror movies. Like, that... 
have an audience that is about as general as they can, but they still try to scare you. Like Feels the like, first half of it, absolute classic. Absolutely. And it's kind of interesting to see what you can accomplish with your hands tied behind your back that way. So The stands? Yeah. Uh, in a way, it's, uh, as much as I complain about the Stephen King adaptations for TV having the teeth pulled out of them, it does sort of force you into making creative choices. Yeah. So that was the kid half of it. And then the animals eating people, well, one of my favorite things... Was, is Jurassic Park, was watching dinosaurs eat people. And, uh, you know, we can't always afford to have those kinds of special effects in our movies. And I like, I know none of these are based off of true stories, even though Saltwater is going to pretend to be, um, that these animals do exist. They're real creatures in this world that can and will eat us. So I'm going to put you on the spot here, because you've made a good case for when animals attack and a good case for transitional kids' horror. But why both? But why did, what brings them together? I don't know the idea of kids and alligators together appeals to me. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Maybe what, which would eat the other. <laughs> yeah, okay, okay. I think that no matter what the subject with Matt Risling and Larry Parsons helming the podcast, it was going to be of high quality. Well, uh, let's take so that. let's take two completely disparate <laughs> subjects and mesh them together and just make it fucking work. All right, all right. Is there anything else you want to say by way of introduction before uh, I list off these movies and we start talking about them? I know you taught Coraline at a university level, so... Yeah, so I was teaching a gothic uh, gothic lit class, and uh, I put Coraline on the syllabus largely because towards the end of the semester at Christmas, I wanted to give myself some time to mark shit, so I gave <laughs> the Coraline book to read, and then there's the Coraline movie class, so I can just, like, catch my breath and... Uh, I mean, by this time, the students are so stressed out that they could use a turn-your-brain-off. Um, but it was also like a Chinese university, so they hadn't seen Coraline. Uh, and there's not really much of a horror movie tradition, so they tend to get scared by things that wouldn't be... Like an 18-year-old or 19-year-old Chinese student would be scared by things that are like... We wouldn't anymore because we've seen so many yeah. deaths and so much <laughs> gore. But, uh, you know, a lot of them reacted more viscerally to the Coraline movie than I would have thought. I do think about this. Like, my boys love the John Wick movies. Have you seen any of the John Wick movies? I tried to watch two of them. They have uh, the death count of a video game. And even as much as I liked action movies when I was a kid and really grim stuff like The Predator, I wonder if John Wick would have given me a stomachache <laughs> if I saw it at that age. I, it just made me... It, John Wick movies, it felt like watching somebody else not even play, uh, like play Contra or some one of those <laughs> video games from the 1980s where just pixelated people go. So I shouldn't uh, make you review any John Wick. I don't want to <laughs> review. They're, they're just exhausting. Okay. Well, here are the six completely random <laughs> okay. movies that we're going to talk about. Uh, Coraline. Uh, Crawl from Alexander Aja. We have talked about that director before. He did Mirrors, that yep. Keeper Sutherland movie that we talked about. Uh, Blackwater Abyss from Andrew Trauke, a sequel to his movie Blackwater, but it is not dependent on you seeing the original. You'll be happy to know. Because I haven't seen the original, but I found it very easy to keep up with yeah. an <laughs> alligator is eating people. They're, they're trapped. There's an alligator. No, we're there. The Gate is a movie of my childhood, which I might be a little nicer to than I need to be, but... Uh, I mean, shout out Canadian <laughs> cinema. Right? It really, really took me back to Toronto. It really made me homesick for there. Um, and then we have this interesting number called Salt Water. Uh, the Battle for Ramry Island. Uh, it's a, a once-in-a-lifetime movie. We're just going to table that. We're just going <laughs> to table that one, but... but. <laughs> 
And then we have from producer Guillermo del Toro, um, Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark, based off of the classic series of children's books, in which I found the stories to be completely benign, but the illustrations terrifying everybody literally everybody agrees with you uh, so i hadn't encountered that book when i was young but i've encountered a lot of people that encountered that book when they were young and they were all really fucking upset about those and like the artwork is horrifying yeah and the stories really aren't the stories really are kid friendly yeah um so anyway uh those are the movies that we're going to be talking about thank you for being here let's do it boom Coraline Jones always dreamed of finding a better world. A world more exciting than this. But never did she imagine that she'd discover it in her own home. been waiting for you, Coraline. Where parents are always fun. I love your garden! Can't believe you did this! And everything is so good. What's shaking, baby? It just can't be real. Mom? You're just in time for supper, dear. You're not my mother. My mother doesn't have... B-b-b-buttons? Do you like them? I'm your other mother, silly. You probably think this world is a dream come true. My name! But you're wrong. You do like it here, don't you, Coraline? You could stay here forever. There's one tiny little thing we need to do. Black is traditional. All right, Coraline is a 2009 stop-motion animated picture from Henry Selleck. The same man who directed A Nightmare Before Christmas. The reason I hit that is I get sick and tired of people saying that Tim, Tim Burton, Burton directed A Nightmare Before Christmas. He didn't. Henry Selleck did. And he's a brilliant guy. I really do think he's really good at what he does. And this is a, a novel that didn't necessarily need to be approached through animation, but I'm so glad that it was. I mean, if they were going to do a film adaptation of Coraline, stop motion was the way to do it. Right. I, like, I think... I think this medium was the perfect medium for this novel. Right. Uh, sort of classic fairy tale stakes. Coraline is brought to a new home and uh, has to sort of find her, or, or comes to this house trying to find her way in the world. She just moved here and it's full of mystery. Uh, there's the weird kid that lives next door. and uh, Which is a follow-up question I'm going to ask. Yes. Because he's not in the novel, not in the novel. so that's right. one of the things to the, I was wondering about your opinion: accomplish? why was he there? Like, if you were the screenwriter, why do you create that character? Okay, well, I'll get to that. But um, uh, anyway, mysterious neighbors and all of the sort of eccentricities of the characters can be accented through the animation. So, like the circus performer that lives upstairs is absolutely absurd in his acts and movements in a way that we can completely accept and enjoy. <laughs> and uh, so nothing's too big in this world. But uh, what will sideswipe people, I think, is sort of the scariness of the story. Especially, you know, you know, 80 minute stop motion animations are typically pure family joy, you know, chicken run. Or, or it's, you know, just a fun, energetic family movie. And this has a lot going on. The whole idea of the beldum, the villain of the piece, imp these imprisoned, tormented souls, 
the other mother other mother buttons in the eyes like there's some hard themes and images in it um i think it works i remember when i first saw the movie feeling an intangible disappointment about it that i couldn't quite get my finger on but i watched it again with my kids and i've watched it again for the podcast and i have to say every time i watch the movie i like it more so i i like it i think yeah. it's good um i'm so my theme for this whole group of movies is that a lot of these movies we've got movies that are special and movies that are good and not too many of them are both good and special for, okay. for me i would say maybe only one of them is good and special uh, Coraline, I think, is good, but it's kind of less than the sum of its parts. Or the, like, there is kind of an intangible disappointment with this movie. Like, it could be more than it is, and they hit a lot of beats, and it's really imaginative. And you know, like I've screened it a number of times, so I've had you know I've watched it six or eight times. Right, one of the you're, movies you're well familiar. Uh, yeah, it's a, weirdly one of the movies that I've watched the most out of any movies. It's not quite in Star Wars territory, but I've seen it a bunch. Um, and because I've seen it a bunch, I've got a bunch of nitpicky stuff to say, which is not to take away from it, because it's like, it's good, but it's not quite where it should be. Um, and I think there are some kind of fundamental storytelling things that it's missing and some conceptual things that I think were a little bit muddled. Um, uh, should we just go <laughs> into all of them? Uh, so right before we started recording, we were talking about the They Might Be Giants song Coraline. Right. So uh, Coraline's father, who is played by John Hodgman uh, in the uh, regular parts of the movie at some point burst into song and he's John... I think it would be Linnell singing that one. John Linnell from They Might Be Giants. And it was weird because why does her father's voice change? And like, they're similar-ish. But it's kind of like How I Met Your Mother where, um, you know, the main character is narrated by Bob Saget who's maybe 10 years older in real life. Like, they're similar enough but like, why bother having another voice? Um, but apparently there was going to be a whole They Might Be Giant soundtrack and it was like Most a, last, it was scrapped, a yeah. last minute cut and that's felt in like the song that they keep um, which they have to I guess have kept for plot reasons and so do you, why don't you do the plot okay uh, Coraline discovers a door in her house that leads to a parallel or an alternate universe oh so back up Coraline is a miserable kid because she's moved from her f- comfort her friends her somewhere to Michigan yeah I, no, I think she was this is much more rural than she's used to and the neighbors are weird and the kid outside is weird and she's uh, not only does she not like the place she's actively fighting it like mm. she's being obstinate about it the way a 12 or 13 year old girl probably would be in the scenario and yes so she's not getting along with her parents and so when she discovers this ultimate world that is uh, inhabited by an alternate version of her parents that have buttons for eyes, but who hang on her every word, pay attention to what she has to say, let her eat junk, let her get away with whatever she wants, and uh, imply to her that everybody has other parents, that there's nothing unusual about this at all. And of course, there's all these other, I mean, it's not necessarily the part of the, pl- of the plot, but these details that I like about the Neil Gaiman world, that uh, the two worlds are distinct, but that the cat can sort of bounce back and forth. Um, and... Uh, so there's a cat that she meets. Yeah. That 
is like in the real world, just a cat that hangs around her when she goes into the other world. It's like a talking her. cat. But uh, he played seems... by the inimitable, just one of those. One of Keith those... David played Keith the cat. Keith David, yeah. Yeah, uh, he's got one of those voices. <laughs> and those faces, when you see the face, you'll know exactly the guy we're talking about. Um, sort of like, oh, the, it's the details of the world, the sort of low gamonisms that, that kept on catching me and distracting me from it. But uh, the other mother wants her to stay in this world, and part of staying in this world is that she has to get buttons sewn in for eyes. She also meets these other spirits of former <laughs> victims of the Belden. They're like these terrifying lost soul children that they've forgotten who they were. And there's... Yeah, so she has to sort of reconcile her feelings about the real world in order to conquer this alternate one. And this creature, this Beldum creature, I'm not even sure if the other father is a real, like, entity. No, he's not. He's... Uh, so everything in the other world is fake. They're all things that the other mother created. The only things that are real are the Spirits. spirit children, and then everything else is like, like a Chuck E. Cheese or something. Yeah. Because it's weird, because the other father seems to try to warn her at times. Which is like he a, has his own... Which is, this is where I get to things not being quite consistent, because right. that's kind of like a plot hole in some ways. Like, he, the things that she creates don't have consciousness, so that would be like if she created a magical imitation house and the walls warned her, like it... The other father... The house regretted what it was doing to Coraline. Yeah, and which would be fine if it was set up in some ways. But I think... my So my problem with it is there's a lot of payoffs that aren't set up. So, for instance, her other mother says, you can stay here as long as you want. Just let me sew buttons into your eyes, which is a horrifying image. But also, who would ever say yes? Yeah. <laughs> uh, and as the audience we kind of need to be tempted alongside Coraline but when we're like oh so the eye thing is a deal breaker yeah (laughs) and like it would only ever be a deal breaker like um and there's a point where the Coraline's gonna be doomed to stay in the house forever and then the cat tells her the other mother really likes playing games so challenge her to a game but we're two three or about a half of the way through the movie when this happens and there's been no indication leading up to this so it's just like a really abrupt plot point and it almost feels like the Beldum's obligated to say yes to the proposal like, yeah like uh, if you if you make an offer of some sort of this tit for tat that it can't say no it's part of the rules that we were never really explained yeah and so I think about this um, with the the dictum about Chekhov's gun if there's Mm -hmm. a gun that's present in the first scene it has to go off somewhere I think that's completely bunk I think that's uh, very formulaic but I would say the reverse is probably true if a gun goes off in the last act it needs to have been set up earlier and so uh, there's just like everything's kind of fine and you watch it and you think it's fine but it's somewhat dissatisfying and I think all of these little things that weren't set up kind of add up to something that just it's, it's the got beauty lots of, of the good movie. elements yeah the beauty of the movie makes up for that for me i do think especially projected big the i have a 3d version of it that's not as nice as it was in the theaters but even just watching it and it's regular it is just very very pretty and as far as the adaptation things you're talking about i think that there's give and take and it has a lot to do with the format of the animation you were asking about the little boy uh i can't remember his name right? yb yb um 
Why is he there? My theory, I don't know this, this is just me <laughs> putting it out there, is in order to get Coraline's thoughts and not have her talk to herself. <laughs> but what, what thoughts... What thoughts are expressed by her interactions well, with him? Well, she's very really, standoffish and not even really trying to be a friend to him. But we had that with her parents. Yeah. Uh, and he brings the doll uh, that looks like her. Like, he does very tangentially sort of help push the story along. And uh, there's a while where, and especially in animation, get away with this, where she can talk to herself or she can talk to the cat. But sooner or later, from a writing standpoint, it really helps to give your character somebody to talk to. And the fact that YB is her age, so doesn't know, knows some of the secrets, but doesn't have the understanding to explain it to her. But, like, I, I wonder, it's like, in her real world, she's a disaffected 12-year-old that's moved across the country and is in Michigan, doesn't like it. Um, and she's bitching about stuff, and that's fine. That is, like, the audience already knows that any 12-year-old would be like that, and so if she was griping to a cat, that would be fine. She can make her inner monologue exterior. Plus, she's also pretty rude and standoffish to her parents, so when there's this extra person that she's rude and standoffish towards, like, he comes to save her in the last act, but he didn't have to have done that. Like, the last act... The action scene where he shows up on his dirt bike, it's not it's kind of superfluous and it actually kind of takes away from her defeating the Beldam. I do think she kind of defeats the Beldam though. Like it was her th- outthinking the situation. So in the movie she sets up a trap where she lays out a picnic. There's so there's something She's trying to get her down a well. Yeah, and there's something the Beldam wants. I can't remember what it is. Uh, and it's just this crawling hand. The very creepy, awesome image of a disembodied crawling hand. Um, and she sets up this pretend tea party and puts the uh, placemat or the uh, picnic blanket over the well. And then when the hand goes to grab it, it down falls it down the well. And that is so much better than the stupid action movie fight that happens with the kid on the dirt bike. Yeah, uh, Maybe they just felt they needed to punch up the excitement of the ending. More for me, it's like, I don't know, maybe it's the construct of the kids thing, but reading the, the book, the source material, the bat dog things that happen in the theater that, that we see, it's absurd, but kind of frightening image in the book. And in the movie, it's kind of adorable. <laughs> in a way, the animation took away from it for me. But the sequence in the garden, where they have all of the color in the night sort of glowingness in the garden, just amazingly beautiful. I couldn't have like put that in my head reading the book. So I think there's give and take. There. Yeah. So I can't fault the visuals of this movie. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I I was a big fan of Nightmare Before Christmas. Yeah. Uh, Corpse Bride. So so I felt like it was a little derivative of Nightmare Before Christmas. Uh, but this director I like and yeah. the stop motion style I like and my issues with this were more on a story level than a visual level. Yeah. Uh, and at least Tim Burton legitimately directed Corpse Bride. Uh, this guy also did James and the Giant Peach. Right. He does like to adapt tough stories for kids. And, uh, like, again, I like the movie. I would say definitely watch the movie. But I would also say you might not have the whole picture of the story until you've read the novel. See, I think even the novel, I think the script, a lot of the problems are with the novel. So the Beldam enjoying games comes too late in the novel um the the there's just a lot of structural things that aren't set up well um and i think it's i would say neil gaiman wrote this in haste but he spent a lot of time writing this but i think it's just not 
is not quite there structurally. So he's, there's like a lot of really gripping, awesome images, and it just it's good. Yeah. But it's not great. There's just always a little something missing. Again, maybe the book, I've only read the book once and very recently. <laughs> so uh, I, I feel like I've got to let that distill. And uh, it's hard not to have the pictures of the movie a little bit in my head, having seen it, right? Um, so I think maybe we're just coming at it at two different angles. I don't want to be too hard on the movie overall, though, because I do think, like, I do like it. I do think it's a good, worthy watch. Um, it's not one of my kids' favorite movies. It almost might be more appealing to the older kids or to the adults than it is to kids. But I do think it's completely worth your time. It's also like 85 minutes long. No, so this is where I was drawing the dichotomy with the movies between good and special. This yeah. one is good. Yeah. Um, solidly in the B range. To give it a, a C something grade would be too low. Yeah. It's not an A movie. It's like good. A There's... confident B. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, again, anything Henry Selleck does, my guess is that his worst movie is going to be better than a lot of people's best yeah. movies. So, uh, yeah, keep an eye on him. Is there anything else you want to say about Coraline? Have we run this dry? Yeah, I don't know how long we spent, but I think I've said everything that I wanted to say. It's good, interesting voice to cast. Ian McShane, um, I think, has a lot of fun being the circus I think performer. Don French has got a voice. Yep. Um, oh, and... Uh, sorry, uh... Terry Hatcher, who apparently is one of these actresses who's really difficult to work with, I think does a good job of playing both sides of the like the mom who's exasperated with her daughter and the Belden who's yeah. fucking evil. Yeah, I, thought, I actually thought all of the voice talent was really good. Yeah, so check it out. Yeah, it's it's good. The state of Florida has issued a Category Five hurricane warning. All residents must evacuate immediately. Grab your families, your loved ones, and get out. Dad! We won't be able to come for you. Dad! Dad! Yeah. Oh, my God. What happened? from producer Sam Raimi and director Alexandra Aja. This is not a subtle movie, okay? Uh, I'm a big defender of it because of... It's one of these movies that absolutely knows what it is and is trying really hard to be the best at what it, being what it is that it can be. Um, does it hold water? Like, is it credible as a premise? No. <laughs> I mean, just solidly no. But the momentum of the story, the increasingly literally rising stakes of it, and the performances kept me chewing my nails for the whole time I was watching the movie in the theaters. I had a lot of fun with it. And I think that that's all the movie really wants from you. It wants to give you a good time, and it does that. And so I just I, I, I decided to not overthink Crawl. I decided to not think... 
why are there this many alligators and why are they this aggressive and like could the house possibly withstand that much water hitting it all at once and how is this guy walking on a leg that that's broken all of these things that are completely legitimate i don't know i just took the ride with the movie i had a dumb smile on my face now when it comes down to is it a good movie well I think it's an amazingly well-made movie. I think it's like, it does exactly what it's trying to do. So on that level, yes, it's a good movie, but it is not a smart movie. <laughs> so using the dichotomy that I'm just going to use for the rest of these, I would say this falls firmly in the category of good, but not special. Right. Uh, well-directed, the story is whatever. Uh, so... It starts with our protagonist, who, is she an Olympic-level She's swimmer? training for a swim meet of some kind, I'm not sure. And she just comes in second at the beginning. There's an intense swimming scene, but what is it? She doesn't have the dedication or something that's going to come up, but she's, like, just not quite driven enough. Uh, and her, we learn that her father was always driving her really hard, especially after her mother died, and he wanted her to be the best, and she never was. And then there's, he's in Florida, and she went to visit him in his shack in Florida, uh, and there was a hurricane, so there was a big flood, and she went to his house, which was flooded, and couldn't find him, but then she checked the cellar, and she found out he was there, but getting stalked by a giant alligator. So and the basement was slowly filling with water. About the first 25 minutes of the movie or just them in the cellar? Is it the first 40 minutes of them in the cellar? Oh, so at least a half hour or so anyway, yeah. Um, and, it, like, the the I remember the first scene, because you don't see the crocodile for, or the alligator oh, wow. for a long time. And the first time is, like, she's, like, backing up under the stairs or something. She's dragging her dad, and it bursts from the stairs. Yeah, and it was a really good jump scare. Yeah. Um, if there hadn't been an alligator on the cover, I wouldn't know what kind of movie this was, right. and it would have totally taken me by surprise. Um, and that was a really good moment. Yeah. Um, and the suspense really does work. And Alexander Aja is really good for the ouch moments. Like when we see... Yeah, the... there's a broken leg of some sort. <laughs> and a guy gets his arm bit off right, and right, bent, right, his right. elbow bent completely wrong. And there's a lot of those ouch moments. Uh, I think that... Well, just a minor correction. I'm pretty sure that Barry Pepper divorced their, their mom, and uh, he just was refusing to sell the house that oh, he raised the kids it. in. Um, so he was living at another place. He was supposed to be selling their childhood home. She couldn't find him at his place. She goes there. But part of the thing is nobody knows that they're there. They're expecting them to be another place. And uh, it raises the stakes of the peril, and this is her childhood home. And instead of her father trying to save her and telling her to be strong, she ends up having to be that for him. I get it. <laughs> yeah, and so that was pretty telegraphed. Sure, but there's also scenes where rescue comes to help them, and then for no reason a dude gets ripped apart by five alligators so at once. Those, those and were... that is objectively stupid, but I loved it. So those were the seasons that I liked, because then it was like... So we were going to watch three movies with killer alligators or crocodiles. <laughs> right. One of the things that I was writing... It, uh, I made a, a note in the first movie, and then by the end, I was like scrawling it <laughs> with exclamation marks all over the place. Uh, alligators and crocodiles are not monsters; <laughs> do not behave like monsters. Yes. So when you have like 
you know, basically like the water is lava, don't touch the water, there's going to be something that jumps out at you. That doesn't really happen. But like, I like those ridiculous movies, or uh, those ridiculous scenes in the movie, um, because they're a bit of a reprieve from like the boring father-daughter relationship where we get it. Yeah. He wanted her to succeed. She didn't push herself enough. She's going to have to push herself for them to survive. She's a swimmer. It's in a flood. This is like five minutes of exposition and we get where this is going and it really drags. Like their relationship gets really dull. I guess, uh, especially the first time I saw the movie, I didn't really feel that as much. Again, I saw it theatrically. I do think there's something different about being locked into the theatrical experience of it. Um, But I just decided to go with the movie. And I think this is another one of those movies that I find myself saying this again and again with the podcast. If you fight this movie, <laughs> you're going to win. But Sue, I'm going to totally disagree with you. Because I don't, I wasn't fighting it. Like right. It's not like, oh, giant alligators are killing people. It's so unrealistic. The unrealistic moments were the more enjoyable ones. Right. It was the human moments that the movie wasn't quite up to. So it was more like it wasn't, it wasn't bringing me along in the story. Like, honestly... If the father gets eaten by the alligator, like, whatever, he's not that charismatic. If our hero gets eaten by an alligator, the only reason we like her in the first place is because the first scene was on her by the the language of filmmaking were on her side. But there was nothing really about them that was interesting. I don't know. Like, I, I was scared for her. I mean, I, I never doubted that she was going to get through this alive, but... And I think this is so clever. I lived in fear for the dog. <laughs> she has a dog with her the whole time. And in any other fucking movie, that dog would be killed. Like, I was just waiting for it to happen. And I feel like the movie consciously trolled us. They kept on showing the dog doing things. Oh, we're going to get it. And the dog would be okay. Um, yeah, but the, that's because there's no characters to care about. So we got to care about the dog. But so like w- they didn't kill the dog. And for me, that was a win. <laughs> yeah. And that was fine. But were you concerned about her as her character or were you concerned about her, like our perspective character? I wasn't worried about her surviving the movie, but no, I was no, no, scared but, on her behalf. But like her as a character, like right. what, how would you describe her character? Right. Um, driven. Her dad drove her hard, but like there's no, personality uh she's sort of got that uh i she refuses to lose not because uh she's not the best player but just because she refuses to lose right she's got that attitude about her and she doesn't take loss well even though it was by a fraction of a second she wasn't good enough um yeah um i think the berry pepper thing i like the actor uh, he was the sniper in Saving Private Ryan. He's a Canadian and actor. The and classic Battlefield, Battlefield Earth. Earth, one of his biggest roles. Lucky man. <laughs> that was his career maker. But it was just nice to see him this later later on in his career. Solid role. He does it well. Such bullshit that he could walk on that leg. Like it's so stupid that they have him yeah, walking the thing on about that a leg. A leg being broken is it's broken. You it's cannot. like the transmission in your car is broken. It doesn't mean if it tries really hard, it can shift gears. Yeah. Uh, and that that is the major war of the movie for me. Like, I think if a movie's enough fun, I think I can forgive a lot. And I'm forgiving a lot. I, I enjoy the movie, have a lot of fun in the movie, I endorse the movie. But I would never tell anybody that it was a smart movie. I would say it's an incredibly entertaining movie. Also, just the production level. Like, they built all of those houses. They built that gas station set. The whole thing was shot 
inside, if you can believe that shit. Yeah, like, the practical effects were great. It's an amazing feat of filmmaking, and it doesn't seem when you're watching like, like would that be such a hard movie to make? No, this would be an incredibly hard movie to make. And again, I will stand by certain sequences. As ridiculous as it is, is there's an alligator nest in their basement and they don't know it. When she swims in there, it's a terrifying sequence. Like there's there's real suspense. I mean, my problem. This has been an ongoing thing. Uh, my fans and followers on your podcast will know this. Uh, I'm a character. Right. Uh, I'm a character. And the characters are thin. I and, won't argue. And like, both of them, if you were to give one adjective to describe their characters, Strong. it's intense. Yeah. Like, it's just boring. So, it's a problem when the dog's survival is more... I mean, everybody, I guess, roots for dogs. Except for me. I don't care that much. But in, theoretically, I don't want dogs to get eaten by alligators. Not that emotionally attached. But then we're expecting it and that we're not giving Yeah, it. and so that was one of the things. The first time the dog didn't get eaten, then all of a sudden the dog becomes Wedge from Star Wars. Like this guy <laughs> in the X-Wing battle just keeps not dying. There must be something special about it. Uh, but I think it was a conscious thing. I won't name the movie because I don't want to spoil it. But there's a movie that cast Sean Bean in it. And the character's in jeopardy through the whole movie. And because it's Sean Bean, you're like, oh, he's fucking dead. <laughs> right? I have no idea what movie. No, I'm just saying. Sean Bean is infamous for all of his famous death scenes, right? So you have a character who's in great jeopardy uh, and not a main player in the movie, but somebody that we need to worry about. If it's Sean Bean, part of us just assumes the dude is dead. And I think they were doing the same thing here with the dog. So are we going to spoil the movie? Sure. Because I think Barry Pepper surviving. Yeah. Barry Pepper was always supposed to die, but then he (laughs) ends up surviving. Um, And that was... It was nice. I mean, when they they both lived, I was like, yeah, that's nice. I mean, these... These unlikable people lived. That's nice. It's like, he's forever changed by it. He's certainly not going to be a handyman anymore. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Quite literally not. No, and uh, again, I go back to it. Like, the nest sequence, is it credible? No, but it's terrifying. The sequence where she jumps out of the shower stall and traps the uh, creature in there. We've just seen this thing jump through a wooden stairwell, but now... Shower glass is just so, too So, much. like, imagine if you had taken these ideas <laughs> and done the screenwriting 101, where, like, what does the character want? Yeah. What does the character want that they don't know they want? Like, just do those two things with both of the characters would have added, like, exponentially more interest to the movie. So, all of the shots were good. The alligators jumping out were good. Yeah. It was intense, but I just had a hard time really engaging yeah I mean I, I just I had a blast watching it maybe more than I should have like it's not on Tremors level but like it's uh, not even close but, but I mean I'm talking about being that it's a fundamentally silly movie but I love it right uh, I do agree that this is a fundamentally silly movie but I, I still recommend it's it it's nothing to do with it being silly imagine yeah. it was the same movie but instead of that father-daughter, it was Kevin Bacon and Fred Ward. Right. Imagine how much better it would have been. <laughs> yeah. Because not only are those characters charismatic, but they they both have, like, goals that they want. They both have, like, their proximate goal and then their goal that they don't know that they have as a goal. And it just brings... You will forgive so much. Yeah. 
But, and again, I'm not really comparing the two movies because I agree. Tremors is one of the greatest creature features ever made and Crawl is a creature feature. Yeah. But <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, I, I just think that, like, in the arena of silliness, yes, this is a silly movie. It's a silly, fun movie. And for the fun that it gave me, I forgave the silly. So I'm not going to grant you that because we've got two, <laughs> two more to much go. <laughs> more silly crocodile movies. And as far as crocodile movies go, this was the Citizen Kane of crocodile movies. Okay, 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 okay. To be continued. I think we know where we stand on this. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, you liked it. I think I liked it a little bit more than you, but I can't really argue <laughs> the points that you're making. And I have no big criticism. It's a very well, well done movie. Uh, relies a lot on jump scares, but a lot of love and work went into it, the crafting of it. It does all the work for you. It's one of those things where you like, you want to watch something, but you, you don't feel like you're too intellectually up to meeting a movie halfway. This one will do all the work. I give it a hard B. There is a passageway to the most evil place you can imagine. A gate behind which the demons wait to take back what was once theirs. And now, someone has opened the gate. There's this weird tearing sound there in the decomposed corpse of her dead father. Oh no. He's tearing out air by the hands. Calling the police. You got demons. Ah! I mean, you guys were serious about that demon stuff? Demons? What kind? You've been. So we're going to talk about The Gate from 1987, directed by Tibor Tekex. I don't know how you say that. And written by Michael Nankin. Uh, a lot of times when I have a take on a movie, it's sort of easy to say why, you know. I like Crawl because alligators ate people. I think I like The Gate because I saw it when I was 10. <laughs> you know, I... I I have affection for this movie, and I understand that it has a lot of problems, that it's essentially kind of empty and dumb. But, uh, always with the but, I think it appeals to me, the idea of being a young kid left home alone for the first time, or, you know, you have a, a sleepover and you're feeling unsupervised, and you can get away with stuff, you can get into mischief, and that sort of energy and excitement kind of elevates everything that's going on. For some reason, this movie, The Gate, taps into that feeling for me. Not necessarily through the characters of the movie, but the feeling that I had as a kid when I did that. Um, there are a few things that can be said about this movie. Technically, some of the special effect works in it, that may be primitive to our eyes now, were a little bit game-changing. There's a scene where they go from a practical effect to a stop motion effect in the same shot and yeah that's a big demon falls and becomes a bunch of little ones yeah very well done a big wow moment for its time and um of course the gate introduced the world to steven dorf who Which was like a young steven dorf looked eerily like a middle-aged bruce mccullough <laughs> weird that's not you're right you know i 
I don't know that I actually put that together, but there was something about him. Something about his face that was like bigger than his head or something. And, and like he has a weird sternness to his expression that doesn't necessarily seem required. You know, like the way Ice Cube seems to be snarling at everyone, whether he means to be or not. That was there on this little kid's face yeah. <laughs> for some reason. It's weird to think that he would grow up to be a sexy adult. <laughs> if, in fact, if in fact that is what happened. But uh, there's a scene in the movie that I'll always remember where, you know, these boys find a hole in the back of the yard that uh, is a portal to hell and uh, causes problems for them while their parents are away. But there's a scene in the middle of the movie, I know I'm jumping all over the place, where it seems like his parents have come home. And he is so relieved because, thank God, monsters, death, high stakes. And his dad's personality completely changes. He becomes super aggressive and his head falls off and shatters on the pavement. For whatever reason, the age I was, the time that I saw that, that sequence fucked me up. Mm. And uh, I've never been able to reconcile it. And I've always had a weird fascination with the movie. And I bought a new copy of it when they issued it on DVD, and I watched it again for the first time in years. And I objectively understood that it wasn't a good movie, particularly, but I had a really good time while I was watching it. So I feel like you're <laughs> picking up on the exact same thing when I was across the country watching these, picking them up, with my dichotomy of good and special. So we've... <laughs> Seen two movies that are good but not special. This is a movie that is special but not good. Well said, sir. Because uh, you couldn't really recommend The Gate. But there was something... There's something about it. Like, there's a lot of energy behind it. Not everything is particularly well executed. Um, each scene, I would say, is pretty interesting. It's cheesy. It's full of 80s cheese. Uh, very obviously came out in the height of the satanic panic yes. where he's, his best friend is this fan of heavy metal music and finds this heavy metal band their album liner gives all of the uh, clues about what's going on with this gate to hell in his backyard thanks Nancy Reagan yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and I mean it's ridiculous and I, I don't even think if you're you know, millennials or younger, even old millennials, it just won't resonate with. Like, the Satanic Panic was a very mid to late 80s, ending in kind of the early 90s thing. But this was a very time capsule of it. But also, it was a time capsule of horror movies for adolescents, like horror movies for 11-year-olds or 12-year-olds that don't really exist, that... that because it's scary really enough exist? in its premise that it, it seemed like it could get away with the hard R. But the hard R would kill their audience. So they wanted it to be scary enough that they could call it scary, but not so upsetting that it wouldn't be good for the kids. And this sort of weird middle ground that they landed in, I still think that, it, well, for me, I thought it was intensely scary. But again, I was very young. Watching it at 45, I was just sort of bemused. Like, I was hypnotized by this movie. Right? So I, I think tonally it was similar to a lot of 90s shows that I have a lot of affection for but don't think are great like um, there was a series called Monsters right um, oh shit there was a lot of them like that that were like starter horror for kids and like the, the premise, Tales from the Dark Side TV series yeah, yeah. Um, and I think this was punching above its weight for that 
like whoever was doing the special effects was doing a really good job. Like the special effects are made with love. They're dated, but they're also they're '80s effects. Yeah, and somebody that wanted to make these monsters made the monsters that they want to make. It reminded me a little of um, the fourth Friday the Thirteenth movie, where it's just it's just more joyful than the other ones. Yeah. And, uh, you know, they had a clearness of purpose. They really did think they were making The Last Friday the 13th, and they wanted to make it as good as they could. Yeah. And I do think this isn't necessarily about people not trying. They obviously spent money on the movie, and, like... No, I, everybody was going hard. Everybody was doing their best, and it comes through. Yeah. Another thing, and again, I keep on going to, why did I connect so completely with this <laughs> when I was a kid? Because I don't know why I'm defending it now, necessarily. But there's a scene where the... The Dorf character is humiliated at a party in front of everyone, and he actually breaks into tears. Which is weird, because they don't believe that there's magic, and then he starts flying, and then everybody and doesn't they believe. they still don't believe But, him. like, they're all there witnessing him flying. Yeah. But the fact that he wasn't... <laughs> I just walked home alone tonight with my kids, but it's the Kevin McAllister. He's wanting to get attention, but because he's the smallest person in the room, no one's taking him seriously, and he gets so frustrated by that. And I'm frustrated on his behalf. Um, but it's weird that we see he's such a kid. Like the, I think that it was authentic that, you know, kids cry when they yeah. get humiliated like that. And he flees the room. And part of what's bad about it isn't just that he's cried, but that he's humiliated. And his, 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 so their parents are gone. His sister, who must be about Teenager? 15, yeah. something like that, holds a party and... So she's whatever, three or four years older, but it's those like crucial three or four years. It's a bigger deal. Yeah. um, And the scene starts with him doing pretty well at the party. People are kind of liking him and then creepy things happen and he flies. uh, Some sort of demon makes him hover to the ceiling and then, yeah, he starts crying and then feels embarrassed and like it plot wise, it doesn't really work out because if somebody were really at a party with older kids and they were flying against their will... It would make an impression. (laughs) But emotionally, you get it because you're supposed to be watching it when you're the age that he is when this is happening. And so there's like this alienating... Or like there's something going on with the world that you can't quite... And I'm not quite ready for. I do think it's successful in that. It's sort of like it's a compliment that I can pay to the film. Like, I think it understood the kid perspective in a way that a lot of horror movies will miss. Yeah. Uh, he's not helpless. He's not stupid. He's scared. <laughs> yeah. The, the nearest analogy I can find is another 80s movie from about that time, Invaders from Mars. Very good. Yeah. Yeah. What do you do when you spot your biology teacher eating the frogs? Yeah. <laughs> That would be another perfectly good example of the type of movie I'm talking about here. It could very easily be on this list. Yeah. I think that's a better example, probably. Um, I think I have a personal attachment to a movie, and it's always weird when you have a personal attachment to it. Like, my brain is telling me, that's not a good movie, don't recommend it. But my heart is telling me, but you loved it so much. So when I watched it when I was an adolescent, I actually didn't like it. Oh, really? Because I was big into slasher movies at the time. So and it was coming, too kiddie. Coming to this, it was like... Whatever, I'm 11 years old. I've seen Jason kill 100 people. Like, yeah. There's no, nothing going on here. Um, but looking at it in retrospect, as a movie that I have no nostalgic attachment for, I can see why 
it worked well, and I can see all of the innovations it's doing. The script is not great, and again, special but not good. Anchored is, on child actors who aren't terrible, but they're child great. actors, you know, so that's going to hurt you. His best friend, I feel like his best friend went on to do stuff. He was what? like, like, the guy that was like the ginger best friend in all of these movies in the oh, 80s. Yeah. I can look him up, I'm not sure. Um, the other thing I wanted to say is just a word about 1980s special effects. I think that they're entering the Ray Harryhausen world of effects now in that we love Ray Harryhausen's stop-motion animation, but we're not fooled by it. Mm-hmm. The green screen in this movie is brutal. There's a scene where the kid gets thrown out of the house by an explosion, and the image of him com- composited over top of the explosion Doesn't is hilariously inacu- I- 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 you know, inadequate. Um, the big multi-armed caterpillar demon that erupts from the floor looks like claymation, but I have to say... I really like it. Well, so it's part of where we are in the world of special effects now. Anything can happen. Where our our basic standard is things must look perfect. Right. But it's hard to put yourself in a late 1980s headspace where it's more like if you get the idea, your brain will meet you halfway. Right. And so this this has that. This has a lot of... Let's give the audience something to meet us halfway on. Yeah. Uh, and I think that if you, because of that, if you are a child of the 80s, this is going to mean more to you. If you're younger than that, you'll face the uphill battle of the special effects. But I invite you, the same way a lot of people can with the Harry House, and that's why he's. Uh, I, there's been a resurgence of interest in Clash of the Titans, the 1980 Harryhausen one. It was sort of the last hurrah of his style of uh, animation. And nobody is fooled by it, but everybody loves it. And I kind of think old school 80s effects deserve that kind of respect too. Yeah, there's another one that I've shown in courses that I've taught. Uh, a class I was teaching on mythology... Uh, I showed them clips from a bunch of movies like the the trailers and like you you have to vote as a class about which one we're going to watch and it was almost unanimous the Harryhausen Clash of the Titans oh interesting because there's something there's something engaging about that that in the 2012 Clash of the Titans CGI one is not it's not impressive it doesn't resonate I mean and I'm not saying that people didn't pour their hearts and souls into making those creatures look cool but there's something less impressive about it when we've, we've just an A and inundated by it, but like that we know in a computer we can build all these things. Like these are tactile handmade puppets that are moved a frame at a time for us. Yeah, and, and they feel more tangible. And yeah. that's something about the, the demons in the gate. And, and like I'm old, so <laughs> whatever. Uh, when I watch CGI demon movies and you can just tell they're created in MS or whatever the fuck that movies create demons like yeah they look great everything looks like Diablo from the Diablo video games and that's effortless and generic looking where this is there's something kind of tangible and charming yeah as an intro to horror movie I still like I'm gonna play limited defense for the gate but I will concede that it is personal I have a nostalgic affection for it and take that into consideration (laughs) <laughs> yeah, so uh, like almost every movie on this list, I wouldn't exactly recommend it because mm. uh, who would like it? Who's the audience? The audience is knocking on 50 at this point. The audience was 1987. 
and they either watched it or didn't. Yeah. But I I have a lot of respect for the effort and craftsmanship that went into it. It's too bad. Like again, like it occurred to me, my kids aren't that into scary movies, but like, could I get them to watch this? And I'm like, I think that they could connect to the story, but that I think that the quote fakeness of it might hurt them. It's too bad. Hmm. <laughs> the case filling up. The river must have burst its banks. We're going to be in the water whether we like it or not. No one knows we're down here, right? Does anyone have service? It's only a short swim. swim out of here. Did you miss something? You cannot get in that What water. choice do I have? Crocs are territorial. He's not going to be happy till we're all gone. Whatever you do, don't splash. Do not move a muscle. So Andrew Trauke is an Australian filmmaker. Um, he did this movie called The Reef about a great white shark that was stalking a bunch of people who were stranded and in an overcrowded shark marketplace. Totally solid movie. Um, he also did, of course, a movie called Blackwater, which this movie, Blackwater Abyss, is a sequel to. And in that case, we had a small group of characters who got their boat overturned by a saltwater crocodile and were stranded and had to figure their way out of this impossible scenario. And in both of those movies, they had an interesting setup with characters that we like, and in both of those movies, not the characters we expect make it out of the scenario. I see you, Andrew Trauke. <laughs> I see what you're up to. And really, what he's doing with this sequel, Blackwater Abyss, is not that different than what he's done previously. It's a well-executed sort of suspense exercise. Like, it absolutely works. Lee and I reviewed a movie... <laughs> about a bunch of people going spelunking and attacked by sharks um, 47 meters down to the sequel to 47 meters down. And so are all of these like knockoffs of the movie Descent that I haven't seen? I really do think that Descent started this. Like, uh, So it's not just good enough to have a shark attack you, but now you're in a confined space. It's not good enough to have a crocodile attack you. Now you're trapped in a confined space and the water's getting bigger. Like... Stakes, stakes, stakes. And I get, these are suspense movies and that's what they, they need. Um, so for me, the problem with the film, if it's a problem, like, um, is that I've become familiar with this guy. So if I bank on a character, like, you're making good decisions and you're doing the right thing. You are not living through this movie, right? You, they are going out of their way to tell us that this is the guy. That's not going to be the guy. I just found out that he has made an, another sequel, a sequel to The Reef. And I guarantee he's going to do the exact same thing. Does this movie work as a suspense exercise as people are being hunted by alligators in an underground cave system that's slowly flooding with water? Absolutely. It's a terrifying movie at times. There's nothing new about it. And having the map of Trauke's earlier work... I felt like I had a map through the movie already. Like I felt like I'd been given a synopsis before I'd seen the movie. Does the movie work? Yes, I think it does work. But again, is the movie smart? 
I don't know that I could say that. So again, I had a lot of fun with this movie. It's a good, well, it's a good time. The way to put it, it's a stressful time, but it's it's doing what it means to do. Um, I think if you look at the cover and say like, I want to see people get chased by crocodiles, you're going to get your money's worth. How like how much I'm going to go foam at the mouth, how enthusiastic it is, I go. It's based off of one one viewing and. Like I say, I feel like I've cracked the code. I've figured out Trilkey. I like what you're doing, buddy, but I'm starting to see through you. <laughs> uh, for me, uh, I, I, so I don't think this is the worst movie on the list, but it was least impactful. Right. Uh, I thought it was whatever. Um, Did it scare you? It didn't. It didn't anything. Oh, okay. Uh, I mean, the premise is kind of a little silly. Like, it felt a little bit forced. So there was, like, a spelunking movie, and then these young, attractive, college-age people spelunk into a cave, and then the cave starts flooding, and there's a crocodile. But, like, what's the crocodile doing in the cave? Because crocodiles don't live in caves. (laughs) But whatever. Like, I'm not even going to fight it on that. It's whatever... Um, the characters are character. It's just fine. Like it's fine. I this is the movie where people go into a cave. There's a bunch of them, and they get whittled down until there's only a few left. So we were talking about plot points. Yeah. I think there's basically like there's kind of two, three plot points. They go into the cave. There's a crocodile in the cave. Some of them come out. Yeah. Um, and then. Weirdly, when they're driving away, their car crashes into the water and the same crocodile attacks them. I was going to get into the third act, yeah. <laughs> it's like, this is another one where... This was the one where I was writing in all caps, crocodiles are not monsters. Yes. Uh, crocodiles are scary and they'll kill people, but they're not monsters. Crocodiles are not the monsters from the descent. Which is why I go back to know what your movie is. I think Crawl knew that it was kind of silly, fundamentally. And I'm not sure that Blackwater Abyss does. This is why this is the one that's the least impactful. Because it's not the worst movie on the list. No. We will get to the worst movie on the list. <laughs> this is not it. But I liked the worst movie on the list a lot more than I like this. I just nothing to this movie. <laughs> I think... Honestly, and this is not fair on the movie, maybe not fair to the review, maybe I lose my credibility, but had you seen 47 Meters Down 2 before you watched this movie, I bet you you would like this movie a lot more. Because as dumb and sloppy as the character work in the first act of this movie is, it is amazing compared to how badly executed. Uh, so that feels like a bit of a thin compliment. <laughs> right? No, it absolutely is. It absolutely is. But it's like, um, they're just... It's the same movie almost, except for a crocodile instead of sharks. And the other one, there's a bunch of sharks. So that's another thing that I was feeling with this movie. It's like, it's this plus this. So like cave plus descent crocodile. Plus but black water. It, yeah, descent plus black water, cave plus crocodile. But the two things just don't go well together. It's like marmalade on a hamburger. Yeah. And yet, when the guy goes to get the floating whatever <laughs> in the dark water, and he's very slowly reaching for it, as much as it's clearly like the guy holding the match walking down the dark hallway until the boo happens, that works. Like, I mean, yeah, the booze were, it was like good booze, and 
It was well directed. Yeah, Chucky doesn't know what he's doing. It wasn't a B movie, but it wasn't an A movie. I'm not sure what you would call it. Yeah. Uh, in scale and like size of the story, it's a much bigger movie than the first one. Like, obviously, he was a, young in his career, and he had basically three actors in a boat, and uh, he cut the footage around the crocodile or whatever. He obviously has more tools to play with here, and he's able to bring up more suspense. Again, character-wise, not that great. Could Who do you cheer best? for in the movie? I mean, it's not like everybody's hateable, but there are types going on here, and you can see the decision-making. And there's like, some point where you realize somebody had slept with somebody else that they weren't supposed to, and you're like... We oh, don't care. There are bigger problems. And, um, Thank you for bringing that up, because Hollywood, independent, Netflix, anyone, fucking stop it. If there's a crisis situation going on, I don't give a fuck who slept with whose girlfriend when. Yeah. Neither does the audience, and neither should the characters in the fucking movie. Yeah, it was like... <laughs> it what, happens... What do people oh. hate being cheated on? Let's put this as the climax. Like, it's not the climax. Open Water 3, cave dive. Cage dive, same thing. They're stranded in open water. They're surrounded by man-eating sharks, and they're screaming at each other over who fucked who. It's infuriating <laughs> like no deal with the survival situation and then break up with your shitty girlfriend <laughs> like one thing and like you're at all a time. really good looking 25 year olds this wasn't the last relationship in your life you'll get over it yeah there's a crocodile killing you off one by one yeah worry right. about that honestly i think i would have been in a similar place as i was with crawl and the gate in this and that i was sort of like saying it's got problems but i still kind of endorse it check out black uh, blackwater abyss but that last thing with the two girls the <laughs> so two so people, why don't you explain it okay after again it doesn't really matter there's a bunch of people only two of them get out of the cave system two female characters have gotten out and, and they're they, the ones that was the girlfriend and the girl that the boyfriend was cheating with yeah and they're away and they're out of it and they're driving away and they're panicked and they get in a ridiculous car accident end up in the water and yes they are again immediately attacked by what we have to assume is the same gigantic crocodile. Like they were driving for a while. Like even if you're going fifty kilometers an hour, they have to be fifty kilometers away. Like <laughs> it's hard to say judge time. Establish that in this area there's a ton of gigantic crocodiles or like like Or there's like mudslides nearby where they only get so far. Structurally obviously they felt they needed one more big sequence but to why? justify their like they had gotten out. And it was satisfying. Like honestly, if they'd gotten away at that point, not the most memorable movie, but that last action sequence actively hurts the movie. It was like, was it Deep Star 6? Yeah, when they, they get said, to the surface. And there's that other monster attack. I'm like, no! No! The movie was over! <laughs> Just one step too many. It's like if Luke blew up the Death Star. But there then was there was another one. Death Star lurking, lurking behind the moon. There was. It just took us 40 years to get to <laughs> <laughs> So, like, I... I did have fun with this movie, but in a lot of ways, this is like a Larry movie. This is the type of movie that Larry would watch and then not even mention to other people because it's just such a Larry movie. Like, I'm not foaming at the mouth over Blackwater Abyss. I don't think it's a terrible movie, but it's just not a great movie. It's It, it does the job. But for me, I, I kind of got the impression, like you were saying, that you liked Crawl less than this. I, I, I think I wall-to-wall enjoyed Crawl more for 
acknowledging itself. No, I like Crawl more than this. This okay. is this is the movie on the list that I think is the least recommendable, which is weird to say because we're going to get to one that is clearly the worst. Yeah. But th- there's just nothing to recommend. Like, you can't recommend this as a good bad movie. You can't recommend it as a good good movie. There's better alligators jumping out at people. Like, they, I don't know what it's got if going on. If you're a with. fan of the form, like me, if you like animals attack, when animals attack, this is another one. It doesn't distinguish itself, <laughs> but it is another one, and it's not incompetent. But this is a me thing. Right. But also, when movies, or when animals are monsters in movies, it's really starting to get my gourd a little bit. I, I hate to say this, because I know you like the genre. Jaws like is like the best movies. thing ever. <laughs> sharks are like an endangered species that people are hunting to extinction. They're not monsters. They don't even attack that many people. Alligators and crocodiles don't attack that many people. Like, just make it a monster in the caves. Like, what, why does it have to be... Because they exist in the real world, and because everybody's watched Shark Week, and, and, and everybody's seen footage of those we're gigantic a, sorry, saltwater no. crocodiles, and we're terrified of them. Whether we should be or not, they're going to be exploited for horror. <laughs> yeah, but it just, it feels forced to me. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I, it all goes back to Jaws for me. Is Jaws a representation of what great whites behave like? Of course not. But it's an amazing monster movie. But it is essentially a monster movie, you're right. Jaws is a a great movie. Almost all shark movies, I think. Like, why not just make it a Cthulhu monster in the water? Like, why not make it a Tremors monster? The same reason a bunch of bullshit horror movies are, quote, based on a true story, even though they're abjectly bullshit. Because that animal exists, for some people, it makes it more scary. Uh, for so the me, problem, though, is when it's a real animal, but it's behaving like a monster, it, it's, it boots me out of the movie. Right. I don't know. I, I Go way back. Go to the birds, you know. <laughs> Why did the birds attack? That's fake. It's stupid. But it functions for the movie, and it, you know, it does the job. <laughs> I don't think they're making a statement about birds or anything like this. It's just... But the birds it happens was because a, the author says so. The Birds was a fantastical movie. Yeah. Like, it wasn't like, you know, the, like The Hawk. You know, there's a horror movie about a couple that's being stalked by a hawk. Like, I mean, The Birds was a monster movie. It was like some sort of bird intelligence that was making them attack. This was like, it just didn't get me because it was too, I don't want to say unrealistic, but like silly. <laughs> It is. It's diverting. It's fun. I've seen a lot worse monster movies than this. Uh, And you're right. I guess I concede, like, if it had been a monster movie instead of a crocodile movie, maybe a lot of these problems would be solved. But, again, I'm more excited about Crawl, but I'm not going to wag my finger too hard at this movie, especially when Saltwater's already on the list. This would be a good one to iron your clothes to and watch the hockey game with your other eye on the TV and, like, Whatever, it's just... And I also appreciate that it's not one of these really bad, really cheaply executed B-movies where they don't even really try with the effects or with the acting. Like, they're taking themselves seriously, and I appreciate that. Uh, There's just nothing new here. Yeah. Hey, what's going on? Tommy's missing. Tommy's name was in the book. There's no way it's actually connected, right? Okay, what if what happens in the book is exactly what's happened for real? Oh, my God. Stella! Listen, you're in the next story. We're reading it right here. 
It's a corpse looking for her missing toe. I'm afraid that we woke something up. You shouldn't have taken the book. We've got to stop it. Sarah Bellows' book, where the stories write themselves and it all comes alive. The Jangling Man is coming. Okay, uh, director Andre Overdahl did this film, which I adore, <laughs> called Troll Hunter. <laughs> and it is very literally about people hunting trolls. <laughs> and it's completely worth your time. And then he did a completely different and very interesting horror movie called The Autopsy of Jane Doe. And between those two movies, Hollywood must have noticed, man, this guy's got some game. Like those, the only thing those two movies have in common is that they're horror movies, but other than that, they're very different. So Guillermo del Toro has been trying to get scary stories to tell in the dark into a movie form for a while. And he taps this guy and he produces himself. So with Guillermo on board, here's what's just almost goes without saying. The creature design is going to be gorgeous. <laughs> it's going to have rich production values and a solid cast. <clears throat> and all of that is absolutely true. Um, scary Stories to Tell in the Dark is based off a series of children's books. And as I, I was talking to Matt before we started, my experience of those books is that the stories themselves were pretty benign. Even as a kid, I did not find them frightening at all. But the illustrations of the creatures were terrifying. Like, not appropriate for bedtime. <laughs> terrifying. So... Um, and I think when were, when were those books written? They, they were the published 80s throughout the eighties. I think there was three or four volumes. I only ever had the one, but there's a few of them. Um, but they were from the eighties. I want to say the well. That's when I had them. Maybe they were published before then. But I definitely had them. I want to say in the late eighties. So I would have thought that I was a little bit old for the book, but it was called Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. So blah, blah, blah. anyway, um, I think in a way the film is a very accurate representation of the books for that reason, and that the stories themselves are not exactly shocking or enthralling, or, or the characters aren't the thing that really, like, bring me into the movie. The, this whole mysterious house and this trapped ghost who's telling scary stories, none of that particularly connected to me interestingly. It was the visual scope of the movie that absolutely worked. What I came walking away from is, if I was a kid, if I was the same age I was when I saw The Gate, what would I think of this movie? Would it have been too scary? Would it have been not scary enough? I'm right down the middle with scary stories to tell in the dark in that I'm kind of impressed by it, but I didn't really feel a lot <laughs> while I was watching it. But I can acknowledge that the creepy nurse blob woman in the hospital was creepy and well done. I can acknowledge that the scarecrow man <laughs> was well executed. And the whole where's my big toe, which is one of the stories that I did remember from the story, which shouldn't be frightening, actually produced a fairly good suspenseful sequence. So grading it on that bar as a horror movie made for kids, 
I think it's successful. The problem is that I am not a kid. <laughs> so I watched it with a more grown-up perspective. So I got more sort of enthralled by the technical end of the movie. But I do think there's enough there that it was worth my time. It's dense. It's, it's a full two-hour movie, but they pack some stories into that. None of the acting sucks, you know. Uh, it gets the job done. <laughs> That's where I start with scary stories to tell in the dark. So I think we're... Uh, we're disagreeing on this one. Okay. Uh, this is the one on the list that I would say is both good and special. Oh, really? Uh, I thought it was really good. I was really impressed. Um, I didn't have the book Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark when I was a kid. Uh, I think I was well into my 30s when I picked it up. Uh, and I have, I'm a big fan of horror anthologies. Uh, one of the things about this movie is it's an anthology, so there's a frame story about some kids. I don't even know what kicks off that they go into haunted They're house. They're being bullied, they... they run into a haunted house, and they find this book that belonged to this infamous person from the community's past. Right, and then each and of them... starts writing it, the pages start filling themselves. Right, and each of them gets trapped in a short story. That's right. Um... I mean, it's not terrifying. It's not a terrifying movie, although I think some of them were tense, like the Where's My Toe story... You know, and the kid's getting chased by this slow-moving thing that you don't see, and he's under the bed. And it's like, you know, it's it's very basic, but it builds up suspense. Uh, it's not cheap. It doesn't want to be more than it is. But, like, you know, my heart was kind of pounding. Um, the blob nurse, I think, just did such a perfect job of capturing these esoteric illustrations like it would be like trying to capture the original illustrations from beer and loathing in las vegas yeah uh, who's the guy that did those ink drawings i know who you're talking about i can't think of the name right now but anyway the the scary stories the scary stories book the the creature design one of the reasons why they're so impactful because everybody that i've talked to except for me apparently grew up with this book and the pictures really stick with you because they're not like these like fucking i'm a fucking cute g-man with big bulging muscles like they're halfway scary and halfway surreal and the tone of those monsters is so perfectly captured in a way that i wouldn't have thought could be captured uh, and it would be so easy to cheap out. It would be so easy to CGI out. But, like, visually it was good. It was an anthology, which I'm a sucker for. It was imaginative. There were plotting decisions that I kind of was wondering about. So we were talking about this before we started recording. But at the end, one of the teenagers decides to go fight in Vietnam. Like, there's kind of a Vietnam theme, because it's set in the late 60s. Yeah. But... The, the Vietnam theme is not tied to the monster theme in a way that I could figure out. I feel like uh, because it's a period piece, they're like, what screams 60s? What's going to tell the audience this is set in the 60s? And Vietnam was just one of those things that got shouted out. But that was kind of a cop-out, right? right? Because, I I mean, why bother setting it in the 60s? Like, you just don't need to have that backdrop. if. Yeah. If that kid didn't enlist in Vietnam, there would be no audience member that would be like, why is nobody talking about Vietnam? Yeah. Again, it, it probably wasn't essential at all that it be set, period. That certainly wasn't the experience of the books. Like, the books don't have a story. They're just a series of stories. There's nothing tying anything together. That was very deliberate choice and maybe an unnecessary one. But... And the other one is, so the... 
main character, her best friends get caught in these horror stories and they get somethinged by these monsters. We don't know. Um, like the there's this blob nurse that hugs one of her friends and, and he, he disappears. disappears into her body. And at the end, they're like driving into the sunset. She's driving into the sunset with her dad saying like, I believe my friends are alive and I'll get them. I assume that's a setup for a sequel. They want to do a sequel. They're supposed to go into production, but COVID broke the world. Um, but um, I don't like the. So I didn't mind the frame story. There were just weird choices with the frame story. Uh, I don't like movies that are the end question mark, and I really didn't understand why this strange drifter who was in town, who was like this. 18-year-old hunky kid decides to join Vietnam. Nothing. There's just no connection. I could feel differently about it when I watched it again, but I felt like with most anthologies, the framing mechanism only really works as that. And the longer we spend in it, the more we're like, get to the next story. Yeah. I definitely felt that here. Yeah. But this is me nitpicking the part of it that I didn't like. So most of it, uh, like I I didn't even know that this was a movie... Um, and then when I started watching this movie, I was like, oh yeah, there's this book that I picked up in the used bookstore where this is kind of ringing some bells. So there's no emotional attachment. But when I realized that these stories were coming to the screen, I was like, they've done a really good job, better than they ought to have done. Um, and it was, I found it was suspenseful. It was well-directed. And also it was the kind of, horror movie that doesn't get made anymore so it's not like a James Wan movie where it's just a jump scare every 15 minutes or a single use horror movie which I'm finding a lot like the movies that work once and then like well like The Conjuring yeah exactly they're they're fun sort of ride while you're having it but they don't really have a lot to revisit. Yeah, when you go back to them, like, yeah, it's gonna be a musical sting, a demon's but gonna. I find that about Guillermo, even with like his dumbest movies, like Pacific Rim, you can watch it again, and if you look for it, you'll find more. Uh, and I do think, not to take anything away from Overdahl, which I do think he's a really good director, if you have Guillermo producing and you have monsters in your movie, the monsters are going to be awesome. Yeah, and they are. So I'm, I am actually not a Guillermo del Toro can do no wrong. So mm-hmm. I absolutely loved, um, what was this? Pan's Labyrinth? Well, Pan's Labyrinth and the one that came before Devil's it. Devil's Backbone was Devil's my favorite. Devil's Backbone. Absolutely loved both of those. Have not loved anything else he's done, but I get that he puts a lot of love into things. And this was, so I had high hopes for, uh, that stupid one with Loki. Crimson Peak. Right. The ghosts were great. Everything else was done. Yeah. Uh, this was... This felt like the sequel, it wasn't as good as Pan's Labyrinth, or Devil's Backbone, but it felt like the same, like a filmmaker with a vision. And I know Guillermo del Toro didn't direct it, but there was something about the love of what was going on. Like, like I'm a big Guillermo defender, obviously. I wish they didn't win his Oscar for The Shape of Water. But I'm glad he has his Oscar. I never got around to seeing that one. Um... You know, it's one of my least favorites of his films. It's not a bad movie. It's one of my least favorites of his films. And I get why it won the Oscars, but I would have rather he won it for Pan's Labyrinth, personally. Mm. I think it's more of a Guillermo picture. But we're talking about scary stories to tell in the dark. Um, the other exciting thing, again, I guess this is also peripheral, Overdahl is going to be doing, or is signed to do the, the long walk 
which is one of the greatest unfilmed Stephen King stories. Um, so let's get excited about that. Um, I think that it would be nice, in a way, to just leave it be. Maybe because it's been delayed by COVID and because the actors are going to be getting older and they'd have to start worrying about the aging. And honestly, maybe just leaving it as it stands is the way to go. I think adding more to this could only dilute it. Yeah, I would think, don't, or if you're going to turn it into a series... Maybe a TV stress, show or something. Stress the episodes and like nobody really cares about the frame narrative. And uh, they spend a lot of time in the in the in betweens. And for me, it's the stories that work. Although I didn't know it was going to be an anthology because it's like the first part of the story feels like its own movie. Yeah. And actually, that I quite liked. It was then the in betweens where when they go into the haunted house and they find this book and then this book becomes vignettes that was fine with me the the thing i didn't like is the idea of them turning the frame narrative into its own movie or turning like just let the stories be stories when they solve the mystery that there was some girl that was un justly murdered that became a ghost and is haunting these people when they solve that that mystery have her friends just come back don't leave it on a cliffhanger yeah and i and really like they were banking on that cliffhanger and it was just, again just make your movie and if you're gonna make a sequel make that movie <laughs> and like you know if you want to make a sequel just have different kids or different frame narrative but I will say, again, for a younger audience, it's not too, too hyper-intense. And it's got all the classic sort of stories. You know, the spiders erupting from a bump on your face. Or the classic vengeance sort of template of the, the scarecrow stories. It is a great intro to horror sort of picture. And I think it is accomplishing everything it wants to do. I feel like it's almost me. Like, I want to watch it again and see it with your eyes. Like... I felt like I was almost too intellectual as I was watching the movie. I was appreciating the movie instead of getting caught up in it. Yeah, I definitely got caught up in it. Yeah, and that might be the difference. But I did like it a lot. So, um, And I'm going to keep an eye on Overdoll because uh, I like the man. Have you seen Trollhunter? No, but I'm, I, there's a bunch of movies like John Wick. I've never <laughs> seen John Wick, but I'm sure I hate it. <laughs> I haven't seen Trollhunter, but I'm sure I love it. Okay. Well, I think you're right. <laughs> They say the swamplands of Rumri Island are almost impassable. This is it, lads. Straight on through. There's something in the water! Where? Jesus Christ! What is it? You telling me we're stuck on an island, surrounded by bleeding crocodiles? Did you burn his patrol? Oi! <laughs> We got company. They're coming. What are you up to? Yes! If I have to go down, I'll go down fighting. Okay, we've made it. This is the review that we've been waiting for and that you guys didn't know that you were <laughs> waiting for. This film is called Saltwater, the Battle of Foramri Island. Um and the horrible thing about this, well, yeah, I'm, I'm jumping the gun. There is real history to the scenario that they're talking about here. There was a case in which 
I like two over two thousand Japanese soldiers were forced to cross this swamp and this series of islands, and so almost half of them died of either illness or swamp monster. Yeah, so that's that kind happened. Of urban legendy. Or no, it? it's somewhere in between. So there's one account. Uh, so Ramry Island. Where's Ramry Island? Is it in South Pacific? Well, it's somewhere in the South Pacific. I can't remember which country it belongs to. Um, one American soldier during the, you know, in the Pacific theater reported that there was some time where the Japanese were crossing and for days all you could hear were screams and their entire thousands of their yeah. units, uh, their platoons or whatever, were lost. Um, that hasn't been corroborated and historians and biologists think that this might have been super exaggerated well, because much, I can't stress this enough crocodiles are not monsters right well it's sort of also like the USS Indianapolis with the sharks uh, yes that many people died not all of them were killed by the sharks a lot of them drank the salt water went mad a lot of them were extremely wounded la 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 Obviously, it's basically true. But I think that because the, there is some seed of reality to this, the painful artifice of the movie becomes, like, glaring right away. And just the writing, the fucking screenplay for this. Like, I'm sorry, if you're writing a British character, here's something you shouldn't do. He shouldn't say bye, Joe. <laughs> you, you know, this is not what we expect from the Queen's English. Uh, you know, there's all these like cup of tea lines that are so fucking like painfully but hard. Screenwriter was British stereotype. This is what we think British people sound like. But the screenwriter was either British or an Indian expat living in Britain. Maybe so, but the the writing doesn't reflect that. Same thing with the Indian character, by the way. Not every Indian person sounds like that. Not every Indian person talks that way. But the approach is so... The word juvenile comes to mind. Yeah. Or simplistic. Simplistic is better. It, it's just like the basic, thinnest understanding that you have of these cultures. That's what we're going to inject into these characters. So the, so the movie was written by the the character who played like the the um what's his name like steve lawson is the filmmaker and uh yeah he plays was steve lawson i thought it was the guy that played who's the main guy the indian soldier yeah i have the actor's name here i'm not sure who plays what there's only four actors in the movie yeah so that was weird. Like, it was filmed on a soundstage, you can tell. Yeah. Where like, they're on an island, but they don't go very far because they can only pay for so many... Um, and there's fake... the English character, and there's the Indian character, and there's the hard-ass military guy. <laughs> and the Indian character felt like basically Hank Azaria doing a poo, but more racist. Like, I, I couldn't tell if he was like Indian from India or of Indian descent and was doing an impression of his uncles his it, accent was really hard to place like it was really and he kept on trying to prove himself to this obstinate racist who didn't seem to be owed this respect and everybody was not human and also he went from being like super commando to being like kind of this special needs guy <laughs> 
And this is basically these four guys have to go from point A to point B, get information about what enemy is or there and what their holdings are. And alligator, <laughs> crocodiles, pardon me. Um, and uh, I want to just generally speaking, like you look at, I have the case in my hand and it, this advertises itself as like a big budget historical epic. And when you look at it, like, all of the design of the case is to tell you that this is going to be an amazing sort of, like, epic thing. And it's a micro-budget amateur production. And I resent the false advertising. I, a similar time frame, I got this movie called From the Depths, which advertised itself to be a shark movie. A horrifying shark movie. And when you watch it, it is neither a horror movie nor a fucking shark movie, right? Don't lie to your audience. I honestly think if like this had been pitched as a micro-budget, we're doing our best <laughs> B-movie, I could have at least laughed with it. So, but for me, I ended up laughing at it, which doesn't mean I didn't enjoy it, but it does mean I cannot recommend it. So I had a similar thing where I was laughing at it, but of the movies on the list... I took more enjoyment watching this than I did a lot of them, <laughs> possibly most of them. Uh, it was terrible. Like they, there's <laughs> nothing to recommend okay. it. Well, I'm glad. I thought I thought maybe I, I was sugarcoating my response a little bit because I didn't want to. <laughs> no, it's. I mean, it's it's like a like a low budget sci-fi like sci-fi channel movie. Like, but it's not. <laughs> um, it. It's made by the filmmaker has a pretty prolific IMDb page because I think if you can make a movie for $2,000, you can just make a lot of movies. Yeah. Um, it was terrible, but it was laughably terrible. Um, it made me uncomfortable whenever. So it was a movie about essentially once everybody was killed by crocodiles, which are also horror movie monsters, uh, the characters are getting sniped off one by one, but this really racist British soldier versus this Indian soldier, like on, lo on loan from the Indian army and the Pacific theater. Uh, and the Indian soldier seemed like a really, really racist stereotype, uh, which is why it was hard to, I mean, the actor was of Indian descent, but it can't have been his real accent. But he was like, like the performer was genuine, but there's nothing genuine about the character as written. Same thing with the British character, I mean, no, but the, he's not long enough. The for performance it to be... wasn't like the performance was like, uh, like again, special needs. I, I, I'm going to sound, I, I apologize in advance, but the horror movie is him basically saying, please be more respectful of me, <laughs> right? But I think With that your voice. accent there is a little bit less racist. Than... <laughs> but it's, it, that's it. Yeah. That's the entire performance. But it was really nasally and whiny. And the British entire performance was, by Jove, I don't like the looks of this at all. And that was well, all that of was, the thought. That was the, the commander. Yeah. And then he was being the voice of reason. And then he died in an instant <laughs> Because crocodiles are monsters and also ninjas. And this movie had no reason in it, so the voice of reason couldn't last very long. <laughs> and I, I don't know, it was, it was this weird play that went on for too long about two people on a plot of land saying that they were surrounded by monsters. I had that exact thought. It felt like a bad play. 
It felt like I was watching a bad play, but it wasn't. It was a movie, and you couldn't turn it into a play because crocodiles got to eat people. Well, you could easily turn it into a play because everybody's dying off screen because all you ever get is like this plastic puppet going roar, roar, and then cut to the reaction of the person. Like, they just disappear. Here's they... a picture of a crocodile clearly in a completely different hemisphere. Yeah. Like... Um... And the climax is really dumb where they try to attract as many crocodiles. So, like, in their last, wait, you're racist against me. I'm trying to do my best. Maybe we're not so different, you and I, but let's kill Japanese people. Uh, And then they do a sacrifice that, for some reason, was it attract more crocodiles or attract more Japanese people? Well, their explosion would bring the Japanese into the swamp, which would get them attacked, which would, would... Cause the big tragedy, which this movie proposed to be telling the story of, but it's not even telling that story. Even if this was true, which it clearly fucking isn't, but even if it was, right? Like, we didn't get to the meat and potatoes of the story. It would be like if they did Ghosts in the Darkness, and once they introduced the lions, they rolled credits. Like, it was like it, it fails in the acting it fails in the storytelling but also, it fails historically if it, you're watching the ghost in the darkness and for the first 20 minutes which you're is not, a ridiculous movie by the way not sure if you're watching a comedy <laughs> that isn't quite delivering but it's kind of comical in its beats and characterizations which is where I wanted to get to is it okay is a so bad it's good thing like an honestly okay thing I had fun watching this movie but it is not a good movie and I don't know that I would watch it again in any kind of hurry. Like, maybe if Jeremy wanted to watch a movie, if I was hanging with Jeremy because he's such a appreciator of bad. But is that... Can you recommend a movie that is this bad? So, the line that I draw, uh, my standard is Snakes on a Plane, okay. which is a movie that was made to not be a lot of effort and we'll hope it will be a cult classic because it's a bizarre premise and it's stupid and everybody will hate it but it was made to be a beam like made to be a joke of itself that's really irritating for me anybody can set out to make a bad movie and make a bad movie the trauma approach somebody well no no no, because like tromeo and juliet is actually kind of a not bad movie but most of the time it's like look how bad we are look how bad we are it depends on the movie yeah um i mean trauma is like a production company so they have a bunch of whatevers um Saltwater, nobody's, no, everybody's giving it their all. It's made on a budget of 2,000 pounds. Uh, it's really hamstrung. The performances are inconsistent and weird, and the That's director generous. doesn't have a vision. But there was no, like, it was also kind of tedious. But also, I <laughs> just re- this like really crazy. enjoyed every tedious scene. I was like, there, there's just like, what am, it's like if a Ween album were a movie. <laughs> it's, I, I was into it. In, uh, my attention wasn't drifting in a way that it was in a lot of these movies on the list. And again, like full disclosure, I watched the movie and then I hated it. And then I had a conversation with you and I got the feeling like Matt had a lot of fun with that movie. Was I a complete grumpy bitch when I watched that movie? And I watched it again. I'm like, no, I don't think I was a complete grumpy bitch while I was watching that movie. But this is just a lot to be said with, like, your headspace when you watch the movie. I cannot, in good conscience, recommend this. It also is not a stock movie, right? So, um, 
some of the movies we watched, like Crawl, has its moments, but is a very stock movie. Yeah. Blackwater Abyss is a very stock movie, and they're everything's they're both better than this because almost every movie is better than this. But this is not a stock movie. This is like. A, if you watch this, you will, I guarantee, never find another movie like it. Uh, and also, it wasn't like they were fucking off and trying to make a trash movie. People were doing their best, and it was a really passionate misfire. Uh, so it's not quite like Tommy Wiseau, but not far from that. Uh, I'll quote the unadulterated, unabashed motion picture classic. Muppets from Space, when Kermit the Frog says to Gonzo, who's having an existential crisis on his identity, do you know what you are, Gonzo? You're distinct. Yeah, 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 yep, yep. This is distinct, yeah. Uh, so I haven't seen that, but I think that's a good analogy. I don't know that it's good, but it's distinct. It's not good. <laughs> is that good enough? Yeah. <laughs> so much for doing another Rankin review. It is a fucking joy to have you back on the show. It was a joy to do this face to face. <laughs> and I know it was a weird list. Thank you for indulging me. <laughs> um, i curious. <laughs> I thought I would know, but maybe I don't. What was your least favorite of these six kids in alligator <laughs> movies and why? So when we, when we did our first Coen Brothers movie, we went zero for six. That's right. For the only time. I'm wondering if this might be another zero for six episode. Well, let's find out. <laughs> uh, my number six was Blackwater Abyss. Oh, wow. Good. Um, it, it was whatever. It was fine. But there's, there's just no reason to watch this movie. It wasn't good. It wasn't bad. It wasn't special. It was just like, yeah, some people in the cave this girl is going to be the one that survives at the end and indeed she was uh, and the rest of it was just filler <laughs> we'll get there um, number five should be number six <laughs> on all possible lists but it was just so ostentatious and so memorable uh, in some ways it should be my number two movie because it was the one that I enjoyed the second most but I'm gonna I, I Chalk some of that up to my esoteric tastes uh, and just it put me in a good movie to watch. So, Saltwater, it's a terrible movie. <laughs> Alright, I'm not going to fight you on it. <laughs> Number three and four are basically spinning for whatever. Like, anytime I stop the roulette wheel, one of them could take the other right. one's place. Uh, officially, number four is Gates. Uh, I liked it. I thought it was special. It's not really good. I wouldn't recommend it to anybody. But it's got, I think, an important place in film history. I think it's one of the movies that horror directors watch when they were kids. And they're now uh, bringing some of that into movies. 
and also it's just nice to see horror movies for 11 year olds you didn't see a lot of that these days and I think a kid could watch it you know um, number three is Crawl which is really well done uh, a lot of love went into it I couldn't connect with any of the characters but technically it was a very good movie Number two, Coraline, it's, it wants to be a good movie. It feels like it needed a, just one more draft of a script to tighten things up. Actually, all of the elements that are there, I think, are good. If they could all have just been set up a little bit earlier, and so it was more payoff and less um, just hitting us with random things about characters. But, you know, it was meticulously made, made with a lot of love, good, and number one was Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark, which, uh, it's not a horror movie insofar as it's going to make people feel scared, but I think it was an immaculate movie made with a lot of love, uh, and it realized a vision that is very, just not a, a merely generic vision. Right. That's a good list. And, and making those particular illustrations come alive is no small feat no and that for me especially upon first viewing was the reason to watch the movie especially if you're familiar with the books it's it's worth your time here's the thing though i i don't think like i'm not going to be passionate i don't think we're going to be fighting over this like how dare you first of all we have two groups of movies that really have no fucking business being (laughs) together and there's just there's specificity to it i think this is a first in your podcast with (laughs) you've got too many (laughs) themes going it's too many episodes here or something like that but even if we were to rank those both separately i think both of our ranks are different but i think the difference is here too like my range of the top to bottom isn't as severe like the middle is as you said (laughs) like very interchangeable but yes i have a different list than you i understand everything you're saying about salt water but i just i have to put that in last place (laughs) matthew i have to of course (laughs) you should i should (laughs) I'm, I'm, i'm like I, I feel like I'm not, I'm not even groveling to defend the movie, but, like, I get that it is distinct and that, like, I see what they were going for, but I spend an awful lot of the movie laughing at it. No, it's, it's very much a high school production. <laughs> and a high school production can be adorable, but if I'm going to recommend it to a serious horror movie fan, like, if you, if you are an appreciator of this type of movie and you can get your hands on it for free or for, like, under $5... Maybe. (laughs) If you can find it on YouTube. Yeah, exactly. But no, I I confess, yeah, Saltwater went all the way to the bottom. Um, My feelings about The Gate are a little bit conflicted because of how much I loved it as a child. I put The Gate in fifth place. I think it's good for what it was. and I think it might have even been really good in 1987. The problem is watching it through the lens of 2021. Uh, so, I don't know. I saw it in 1988 or 89. It wasn't really, really good. It was, you know, it was a quickie horror movie. Yeah. Um, but, again, if you're affectionate towards the 80s-style special effects, there's some great stuff like that. Very young. Dorf. <laughs> so, um, I'm affectionate towards it, but I didn't want to over overplace it on the list. Which put Blackwater Abyss all the way in fourth place, Ooh. which I believe you put at the dead bottom. Part of this too is I, I'm a fan of the director, and I think it works enough. Like it, the A to B to C nuts and bolts of the movie work. 
I think that I would have liked it more if not for that third act. That last gator attack, I think, actually hurts the movie. But I'm a fan of when animals attack movies, and this is definitely one of those. Um, derivative because of the cave setting, we're seeing that more and more and more. But, uh, I don't know. Like, it's diverting, but you'll forget it. Um, maybe last pace place is a little bit ungenerous, Matthew, but I'm not going to fight you on it. <laughs> the bottom half of the list is where things get different. In third place, I put scary stories to tell in the dark. Really? Again, uh, I watched it and I connected to the creatures, to the visuals of it, but I didn't really feel much while I was watching it. For whatever reason, it didn't engage my emo me emotionally. But I do love the monsters, and I also have to measure that this was made for children. And if it was nakedly terrifying, they would have fucked it up, because the kids would not want to see it. It would be too much. So, like, I, I want to come back to it and sort of watch it through that prism. I probably shouldn't, because just because he's producing a movie, I, I imagine he's more attached to it. But I, I put a higher bar of expectation when it says produced by Guillermo del Toro, and maybe that was a mistake. You want to be really shocked? Please. Number two is Coraline. I love Coraline, and again, like I said in the review, I think I like it a little bit more every time I watch it. But I think it is the spectacle of the movie that is the real sort of romanticism of it. Um, not to take anything away from Neil Gaiman's story, but uh, I think this would be a great gateway to it. And if a kid watched this movie and it made them read Coraline, fan-fucking-tastic. Um, and as far as the movies directed at children, I think this is the one that made me sort of the most excited, at least upon this viewing. And I like the way it's improved for me. Uh, really, like, uh, I got it dirt cheap and I was going to show it to the kids. Uh, as, as you know, something that I could put up watching. And when I watched it for the second time with the kids, the movie was like so much better to me the second time. So I like that it it grew in my esteem. So why is Crawl number one for me? Yeah, why? <laughs> I had a fucking blast with it. I had a blast with it. And it's two years old and I've seen it four times. I don't know what it is about it. I it, it was exciting. I like Anja as a, a genre director. Um, I don't know. It just... It was a fun experience in the theater. Like, I don't want to oversell it, and maybe I am in number one. Quentin Tarantino said it was the best movie made that year, and that's crazy talk. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> but uh, I think that uh, what were your goals, and how close did you come to accomplishing it? Its goals was to scare and thrill me, and it did accomplish it. Is it dumb? Yes, but I guess I was very forgiving of the dumbness. In a way, the dumbness was the charming part of it. It's a weird yin and yang with Saltwater, because Saltwater was equally dumb, but the dumb hurt the movie. And for me, the dumbest corners of Crawl were actually where I had the biggest smile on my face. With the except two things, though, as somebody who is a first aid person, that was some of the worst mouth-to-mouth -mouth and resuscitation <laughs> yeah. scene. Like, it is terrible. Like, from a technical standpoint, she's actively drowned. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's just like... And again, I've had actual training. I have to research for it every two years or whatever like that. So again, if you're going to say, but that's fake, just don't bother with Crawl. But if you can take the ride, I think Crawl gives you your money's worth. So the only parts... Yeah, the only parts that I liked were the really stupid, unrealistic parts. And the only <laughs> parts that I liked. Those were the best parts. I, mean, I have a soft spot for movies that's like, we just want you to have fun with this. That is our goal, <laughs> you know? And uh, that succeed, anyway. 
Uh, I don't know. It overperformed for me, but I can't lie. I, I just I have some love for Crawl. I'm I sorry. mean, I wish, I wish we had gone zero for six on this. Uh, the nice thing is our bottom three and our top three. Same again. Up. And again, like... And none of them... Like, I thought Scary Stories was, for me, a really special movie. Um, but it's not a hill that I would die on. Right. And there's no way that I think Saltwater wouldn't be... Shouldn't be at number six. Right. It just <laughs> tickled me just so. Well, and it was a weird list. You blame me. This is my fault for yeah, putting these six I, movies I together. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I just had a blast with Crawl. <laughs> I'm sure there's a lot of people who are like, Coraline has a lot of big fans too. There's probably a lot of people like, seriously? Coraline's not number one? You guys I, fucking I think crazy. A lot of people would put it at number one on their list. Yeah, but, uh, and again, I still, number two, that's no shame. No shame in being number two in this show. No. So. And I think that's, that's as high as this movie deserves on a list. Like, yeah. it's a really respectable placing, but there's just something missing. Just a little bit short of perfection. Thank you so much for being here, brother. I'm sorry. You get a prize. Your prize is you do another episode of Ranking Yay. Movie. <laughs> Merry Christmas. And 2022 is going to be better, right? It's yeah. going to get better. COVID's going to go away. People are going to believe in vaccines and stop being idiots. Yay. And there it was. The episode 201 of Ranking Review is behind us. Kids and crocodiles, kids and animals, what did you think? Have you feedback? Because if you do, as always, you can send it to rankingreview at gmail.com. That's R-A-N-K-N-R-E-V-I-E-W at gmail.com. A couple of local Saskatoon podcasts that I would like to push, The Terror Table and The Shelf Shedding Movie Show, if you're looking for more things to put in your ears and you want to support podcasts in middle Canada <laughs> you would be doing both of those things at once the podcast drops every other Wednesday thank you so much for listening